0: Have you ever been really, really hungry?
1: You're listening to Casting Lots, a survival cannibalism podcast.
0: I'm Alex. I'm Carmella. And now let's tuck in to the gruesome history of this ultimate taboo. Already aware that we are casting lots and we will be telling stories of survival cannibalism throughout history and across the world.
1: We will be doing so in 13 episodes, unlucky for some, but lucky for us. And these will be split into three themes. We'll be starting on land, moving out to sea, and then coming back onto ice.
0: So, Carmella, why are we doing this? Good question. <laughs> Well, I think it all started
1: when we discovered that we had a mutual interest in the history of survival cannibalism.
0: I did get a very interesting message from you being like, I feel your tags on cannibalism so completely. I wasn't aware we had this niche interest in common. Apparently it's weird being picky about what cannibalism interests people. But no, I think there's something about the meaning of life and how people react to tragic circumstances and the lengths people will go to to survive. But also it's quite gory and interesting at the same time. Yeah, I think it's just quite gruesome and that's enjoyable. (laughs) Yes, we have had quite a few questions from various people about quite what this podcast is going to involve whether there'll be hints and tips.
1: I think it's safe to say that
0: unless something goes terribly wrong,
1: we probably won't be killing and eating anyone.
0: One of the books I was reading started by saying, well, everyone knows that if you eat a human liver, that's cannibalism, but what if you chew your nails? So, you know, maybe we're all cannibals. Well, that's a good way to alienate quite a lot of our audience." okay so if you're still tuned in now thank you very much before we get started on the stories and the storytelling we do think it is important serious moment i'm afraid to point out that we do know that all of these events happened to real people whether these were hundreds of years ago or 40 years ago so even though we do take a sort of fascinated delight in what happened and why. We're not in any way trying to deride the circumstances that these people found themselves in. And we're not in any way criticising the actions taken, the reason that these happened. It's looking at what does drive people to do things that society deems... Taboo? Taboo. Yeah. Okay, the serious bit over. Who wants to hear about cannibalism? Alex, would you like to hear about the Donna Party? I would love to hear about the Donna Party. I've been very good and not researched it myself. So, as much as possible, I don't know what's coming, apart from the obvious.
1: Who knows what will happen at the end of this story? I think it might
0: be cannibalism.
1: Well, for some context, it's the 1840s. We're in America. I am trying to decide whether or not to do bad American accents. I was about to say
0: yeehaw. so... <laughs> yee
1: Um, I don't know enough about American regional accents to know what their accents would be specifically. They are from Missouri and Illinois? Where is that? America. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to guess it's in the East. In the 1840s, pioneers are heading west to California and Oregon. They're looking for... New land, they want to colonise. Makes Uh, a surprise. (laughs) mm -hmm. Build a new life, maybe find some gold, plant up their crops. There's gold in then the hills. So the normal route, most wagons that are heading to California follow the Oregon Trail at first. There's a musical about that. There is. So they start at Independence, Missouri. They cross the Continental Divide and then turn south. So it's not a short route. They do a sort of triangle. They go up and then down to head west, but that's because it avoids a lot of mountain ranges and unknown territory and follows a known direction. Most of the time that's what they do. That's the plan. That's the plan. So, over we go to the 14th of April, 1846. We've got two families, the Donners and the Reeds. They are departing from Springfield, Illinois, heading west, and they're both hoping to go to California, not Oregon. Both quite rich families. So with the Donners, you've got George and his wife Tamsin, They've got five children, ranging from the ages of 3 to 13, so it's quite common for big families to travel. I mean, it's a difficult journey, but they're on wagons, they're in a big group of people, you've got your grandparents with you, your babies, and yeah, it's fine.
0: A family holiday. Yeah, but it's like a long road trip. I spy with my little (laughs) eye something beginning with M. Is it mountains? It's mountains, yeah.
1: They've also got George's brother Jacob, his wife, their children. They've got six Teamsters to help them along the way. Those are the employees that help with the travel and stuff. Technical term. Technical term. They've got another employee, Jean-Baptiste Trudeau, who I'm assuming is French. (laughs) And they've just got this boy called Luke Halloran, who is not related to them. He's got consumption, but I think they feel sorry for him if they let him on their wagon. The Reeds, we've got James, he's Irish and he wants to move to the southwest because there's a big Catholic community there, so he can practice his religion a bit more freely. He's got his wife, all their children, Margaret's 70-year-old grandmother, who's also dying of consumption at the time. It was very popular. It was. Three Teamsters and some employees, one of whom is an albino. Fun fact, so that's going to make it difficult for him, going across the sun-beaten fairies. I think that's going to be a lot of sunburn. <laughs> the worst of their problems <laughs> so setting out in april is actually quite late in the season already so they're at the back of the wagon train late in the season but it shouldn't be too much of a problem they've got their wagons that they're traveling on the reeds have a massive it's a two-story a double-decker wagon because they're yeah oh. i'm
0: actually delighted by that yeah
1: Damn. it's built for comfort oh. It is not going to be so good at getting over the mountains.
0: It's like one of those double-decker trains. It's so exciting going to Europe and seeing a double-decker train. Yeah, yeah, you can tell that they're wealthy. And they've all got loads of oxen with them that are helping
1: pull because they want to use them to build a ranch later, I suppose, and eat them along the way. See, they've got food supplies. They're not fools. By May, they get to Independence, Missouri, which is the main jumping-off point for pioneer families, and they join the long wagon train that they're going to be travelling with for a bit. So, so far, so normal, all going well. The consumptive grandmother does die along the trail, but that's not weird. <laughs> that, you know, that's expected.
0: Yeah, okay, okay. They build a
1: nice grave for her. It's all very lovely. So they cross the Continental Divide, which is the massive milestone, obviously, because now they are out of America, as it was at the time. They're yeah. out of American law. So, when they reach the Continental Divide, at this point, the reason Donners start thinking... Maybe we could take a shortcut. They may have already read about this shortcut in a book that was recently published, The Emigrant's Guide to Oregon in California. And this is written by... I think it was written by a liar. <laughs> oh, You don't even know the half of it. Lansford. Lansford
0: Hastings wrote this book. I insist on accents. I can't because I'm doing a Russian story <laughs>
1: So, Lansford Hastings wrote *The Emigrant's Guide to Oregon and California*. He's also, just to make sure that if they haven't read the book, they get the message. He's also been sending letters to emigrants along the trail to promote his new route. He's found a cutoff called the Hastings Cutoff. Hastings Cutoff is much shorter as the crow flies because it just goes in a straight line. He's looked at a map and he's just drawn a straight line, so it goes across the Great Salt Lake and through the Sierra Nevada Mountains. So Hastings says it will definitely save a lot of time because it's so short. And he claims that he has travelled it himself, but he has never actually set foot on any part of it up until this year. A couple of months ago, he just decided that he would walk it backwards just to make sure.
0: As in facing backwards the whole way. or
1: <laughs> As in starting in California.
0: He's a lying liar who
1: lies. He is. And he wants to make sure that the people come to California and not Oregon because then you're going to get a big California boom and he can ride that and make a lot of money. He does the cutoff in reverse. He's with a fellow called Clyman. And Clyman turns out to be an old friend of James Reed, who is one of our travelling parties. They were friends from their Black Hawk Wars. Clyman meets up with his old friend and Reed says, We're thinking of taking the Hastings cutoff. <laughs> to which Clyman says, don't do that <laughs> you'll die that's a paraphrase that's not
0: a direct yeah. historical quote good to cite your sources uh-huh.
1: as real professionals of course our sources will be available in the show notes in case you want to read anything more or just double check our references so the dollars and the reeds actually ignore climbing and decide that they are going to take the hastings cut off so they spit uh-huh. off in the main wagon ride
0: I would say this was the first of their bad plans. There are a lot more bad
1: decisions to come, and also just farcical mistakes. And I will not blame them for what happened. But it's true that there are times where you think, Ha! You did that, huh?
0: Yeah, maybe that
1: wasn't the best plan. Mm So now when they leave the original Rag and Train, they've got a few more people. They've got a family called the Breen's. They've got the Murphy's. So that's a family led by a Mormon widow called Lavana Murphy. There's the Kesserbergs, who are a young German couple. The Eddie's, the McCutcheon's. They've all got loads of children. Some of them have babies. One of the Kesebergs gave birth two months ago on the trail. Ooh, So
0: they picked up these families en route. So they were all doing the trail and they're like, hey, we're going to go down this untested side road. Who wants in? Yeah, they're all in. Well, in their defence, they don't know it's untested because Hastings has promised he has
1: done it many a time and he is going to gather them the whole way. Oh, he's there? Yeah, he's there. Well, he's not there at the parting of ways, which is where they spit off, but he's going to wait for them at Fort Bridger. And he's going to lead them across this Great Salt Lake in the Sierra Nevada on his special route. I don't trust him. When the Donafati do get to Fort Bridger, they've got 74 people, 20 wagons. And Fort Bridger is the last place where they could turn towards Oregon if they wanted to. Or they can continue down Hastings route. And as I said, Hastings promised to be there he is not. Oh, what a surprise. I know, he's gone ahead with another wagon party. But he's promised that he's going to leave notes along the way. And he's left some instructions for them. Another traveller, man by O'Brien, <laughs> has actually left some letters with the fort management advising other emigrants not to take the Hastings cutoff. But the fort management realised that if people start taking the Hastings cutoff, they're going to get a lot of traffic and a lot of industry huh from all the travelers they don't give the donna party these letters they keep them to themselves
0: oh people never change do they no capitalism
1: so the party continues there are notes left along the trail by hastings some of them have been ripped up a bit by wild animals but they roughly find them which is impressive finding just scraps of paper
0: along a massive trail that hastings just sort of through in a tree, or just like, oh, go this way.
1: Yeah, I'm impressed. And at some point, whilst they're travelling this new route, they're joined by the Graveses, her family, Franklin and his wife. They've got their grown daughter and her husband, and some other children and one employee. So the Graveses were the last people to leave, so they were even slower than the Donners and the Reeds, and they've now caught up. So this
0: is the last addition to the party. So does that go to show that the Hastings Trail? isn't exactly fast or are the party traveling slow it goes to show that the Donners and the
1: reeds did have a little chill out time while they were waiting at the parting of ways okay. maybe the decisions weren't made as quickly as they needed to be also maybe the Graveses just had a faster wagon unlike the reeds massive double decker
0: <laughs> i'm sorry i love this double decker wagon so much
1: So as they're travelling down the trail, they decide that they should send some people ahead to find Hastings and bring him back and get him to show them the
0: directions. Make him do his goddamn job.
1: Yeah. So they do. James Reed and a couple of men ride ahead. They do find Hastings, and Hastings says he'll ride back with Reed. Halfway through riding back with Reed, he goes, actually, I'm going to continue on, but that's the direction you want to take. I don't know why we're still trusting Hastings. So the next thing is the party have to cross the Warsaw Mountains with their wagons. Double-decker. Their double-decker wagons. It does not go so well, especially because the route that Hastings has suggested is not a, a route so much as a lot of forest that they have to hack down as they go.
0: Did he actually take a group through there first?
1: Yes, he's taken a group a different route, decided that route's not great for wagons, and so has suggested this other route through Heavy Forest. Oh. As far as I know, the group that Hastings is with do make it to safety. Something is to be said there. So in all, it takes two weeks for the Donna Party to cross this very short stretch, having to hoist up wagons. They finally reach the Great Salt Lake, which is of course a massive, salty desert. They still got six hundred miles to go. It is August now. Remember, they're going to be going through mountains at winter. Ideally, they want to be through as quickly as possible. They have the tracks of Hastings and the advance party across the Salt Lake that so they can follow.
0: So that yeah. that's both positive, but also I can mentally see it, and it's <laughs> steaming in the distance. Positive.
1: So they cross the desert. It is very hard territory. There are bogs that sink the carts and the oxen. They have to unyoke the oxen and loads of the oxen just run, run away. Just go. Gone forever. Never to be seen again. So that's a lot of the food supply gone. They have to abandon lots of wagons. Reed has to abandon two of his three wagons.
0: I thought you were going to say two of his three children.
1: (laughs) Not yet. (laughs) So once they do finally cross this, which takes... I think a week more than Hastings said it would. They decide that they are quite low on supplies. So a few men are sent ahead, two men actually, William McCutcheon and Charles Stanton. So William McCutcheon is travelling with his family, Charles Stanton is just a solo traveller, and they're sent ahead to Sutter's Fort on the other side of the mountains to bring back supplies, and they can ride quickly on their mules. Then the party crosses the Ruby Mountains, which is the end of the Hastings Cut-Off, and they rejoin the main California Trail. So the cutoff has cost them a full month of travel. That was effective! Yeah, a full month extra than what it would have taken them. It is now the end of September. By around the start of October, there is another case of poor management and farcical issues. James Reed and a man called Snyder, Snyder is one of the Graves' teamsters, so employees. Reed and Snyder have a bit of an argument about the best way to get some wagons up a steep incline. They end up fighting. Snyder hits Reed with the butt of his ox whip, So Reed stabs him in the chest with a hunting knife and kills him.
0: So tempers are riding quite high. I think they're all a bit stressed. So the question now is what to
1: do because they are no longer in American law, as I said. But Reed isn't very popular because everyone else finds him a bit pompous and a bit rich. <laughs> Presumably his family don't find that. <laughs> but all the other travellers report that that's what they felt. The issue there is that Reed has been making actually some good decisions. I know there have been some foolish decisions, but in terms of trailblazing and raising wagons, he's doing quite well as a temporary leader there. Donna's the official leader, but Reed's calling the shots. Yeah. So some of the party want to hang him for his crimes, but in the end they decide that they're just going to banish him. He can't really take his wife and children with him, so he decides he's going to ride ahead, he can get supplies, he can come back and meet them. And then hopefully people will welcome his return rather than hanging him.
0: I mean, that is a solid line of thinking. Probably shouldn't have stabbed someone. So he takes a single horse
1: and his teamster, Walter Heron. They have to take it in turns on the horse. (laughs) Now we're starting to see some disintegration in the social order of the party. So, for example, there's an elderly Belgian man called Hardcoop who is on this travels with them. Hardcoop doesn't actually want to settle in California. He's just having a nice adventure because he's quite old. He just wants some fun adventure and he's going to go back to Belgium to see his children. Oh, that's
0: such a terrible idea.
1: Yeah. So he's been riding on and off on the Keseberg's wagon, but at this point the oxen are all a bit weak, so Keseberg boots them off the wagon and says, Walk. According to Eddie this is the case and now mr eddie is one of the main chroniclers of the journey and mr eddie comes out looking quite good at the end compared to everyone else
0: that never happens when someone's the main chronicler of a controversial event in history no. so let's take that with a pinch of salt but
1: in any case Harcoop can no longer ride with kesselberg in fact he asked to ride with eddie and is told no as well and eddie saying,
0: writes that himself
1: no. Say other people. Oh. Mm-hmm. When the party stopped that night, they realised that Hug isn't with them anymore. They can't waste any more time. And to be fair, they can't waste any more time. So, goodbye
0: Harcoop! <laughs> they never see him again. Not that I want to jump ahead, but you might sometimes think that the people who... Ended their journey sooner rather than later might have had the better outcome, perhaps, perhaps.
1: Reed, on his single horse with his mate Heron, crossed the Sierra Nevada. They didn't bring our supplies with them and almost had to eat their horse. But then happily, they encountered Charles Stanton, who, if you recall, left the Donner Party six weeks ago with William McCutcheon to fetch supplies. McCutcheon fell ill at the fort. But Stanton's coming back with supplies. The thing is that McCutcheon has family in the wagon train and hasn't come back. Stanton has no family, no particular friends, but he has come back. So kudos to Stanton. I think he's coming through as an MVP here. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. fair. He's travelling with two Native American guys called Luis and Salvador, who I assume maybe are part of the Spanish Occupied Territories. <laughs> Perhaps. Just a note that obviously this route pioneers are coming through a lot of native american land there's actually not that many clashes there's some clashes there's some death there's some murder on both sides more on the side of white people doing the murder and lots of horror stories on both sides but actually it's generally pretty all right back at for laramie the donna party even shared some meals with the local native americans so it's all been pretty good but at this point they are facing as they Go along the Truckee River, they are having a lot of their cattle going missing, which is blamed on Native American locals, as may or may not be the case.
0: Well, they're outside of American law, so.
1: Good point. Find us keepers. <laughs> they travel along the Truckee River. Again, they're falling low on supplies, so more men are sent ahead. Levina Murphy sends the husbands of her two daughters, William Foster and William Pike, the Williams.
0: You can marry my daughter as long as your name is William.
1: And yet another absurd twist. As they're packing up their horses, they mess up really, really bad. And as they're putting a pistol into the horse, it goes off, shoots Pike in the back, and he dies. Maybe check that the gun is not Do on?
0: I... Yeah. No, that's not, <laughs> not on. Not Not loaded. Not loaded. So now I'm just going to assume that they're going to blame the horse. I don't trust horses. They're beady little eyes. But how would a horse use a gun? (laughs) (laughs) They
1: would figure it out. There's yet another misfortune on the route. Kesselberg is hunting geese. He stands on a willow stub. It punctures his shoe, It pierces his foot... It gets badly infected. He can no longer walk. Luckily, there's a horse or mule or cow. I don't know what he's riding. (laughs) He's in the saddle, but he can't walk. So just keep that in mind about Keseberg. And already the end of October, it is beginning to snow.
0: Are they at the mountains yet?
1: They are climbing up the mountains. They are increasing in altitude.
0: This is going to end fine. On the 31st of October, that's today! Ooh, it's like it was meant
1: to be. They finally reach Truckee Lake, now called Donner Lake. I wonder if you can guess why that is. They've covered over 2,000 miles. They only have 100 left to go, but it's across a steep mountain pass on the other side of the Sierra Nevada.
0: See, that's almost worse. They are so
1: close. They attempt several times to cross, but it just isn't going well. There's too much snow. They're too weak. So they realise they're going to have to go back to the lake and
0: overwinter there. I don't like the phrase overwinter. It never has a happy ending. So there's already a cabin by the
1: lake and they build some other constructions, apart from the Donners, who have had a broken axle and haven't actually reached the lake yet.
0: Not the double-decker wagon. No, no, that's the
1: reeds. The donors are
0: rich, but they They don't have a double-decker wagon. Oh, they're not that rich. rich. Well, I hope the double-decker wagon survives.
1: They have a broken axle. They have to stop. Jacob, George's brother, tries to fix it. While he's doing that, he accidentally hits George's right hand with an axe. Oh. The wound becomes infected. George can't use his dominant hand. Oh, God. So when the snow comes, they are seven miles or so from the rest of the company, near a small stream called Alder Creek, and they have to make camp there. Uh... So overall, we've got 81 people trapped at Truckee Lake and Alder Camp. More than half of them are under 18 years
0: old. And quite a few of them are injured or incapacitated. Yeah. And winter is coming. Now that is copyrighted. In the meantime, Reed
1: has reached the other side of the mountains and he finds McCutcheon, who, as you remember, stayed behind ill. Oh, yeah. There's so many people in this story. There are. They decide they're going to come back across the mountains with supplies. They don't manage that, but they reasonably, they left before all of the problems with the Great Salt Lake and all the cattle going off, so they reasonably assume their families will be all right. So they're like, okay, well, guess we'll leave them over winter. However, that's not the case. The Breen's still have most of their cattle, but the Eddies and the Reeds and the Donner's aren't doing so well. They have to start bartering from meat. They're being charged large prices by the Breen's.
0: Capitalism! Mm-hmm.
1: And over the next few months, they're having to eat all sorts. So there's archaeological evidence showing bones from horses, deer, cows, canines, small rodents. They've all been heavily processed for nutrients. Eddie even claims that he shot and killed a grizzly bear. No, he didn't.
0: They did find bare bones at the camp, cooked bare bones, so... Okay, maybe he did. Maybe he did, we don't know. Maybe someone did, and Mr Chronicler said it was him. Yeah, sorry, I'm being so accusatory to treat all of these people <laughs> now.
1: Franklin Graves knows how to make snowshoes, so he makes some snowshoes out of their ox harnesses and rawhide, and they're going to take a group of healthy adults from the lake party across the mountains to fetch help. Sensible. Sensible, so far. The teamsters Milt earlier and Noah James are sent to Alder Creek to borrow Donna's compass, but they get snowed in and they can't borrow it. And the lake party decide, can't waste any more time. We'll leave without the compass. We'll manage. So the snowshoes party set out, and they will later be known as the Forlorn Hope. Oh yes, no, that does ring a bell. Doesn't sound good. They've got 17 people, so it's 10 men, 5 women, 2 of the Murphy boys, so a 13-year-old and a 10-year-old, and the two native guides are going back with
0: them. Yeah, I'm impressed that they've stayed for this long, to be honest. They have absolutely no obligation to the Donna party and the mess that they have happened upon. I think their employees are Sutter's fault, so they've probably been okay. paid to go.
1: But you're right. Okay. I think they could very reasonably have just turned tail once they got to the mountains. They could have done a
0: Hastings. They could have done the Hastings cut off. Seems wasted all that time being annoyed at Eddie. Come back. <laughs> the true villain of the piece, Hastings. Or Winter. Winter
1: will play a part. A little bit in, one of the teamsters does have to turn back with the boy William Murphy because he's not old enough to be making this. And also the teamster, who is known as Dutch Charlie, there weren't actually enough snowshoes, so he was walking in his normal shoes.
0: <laughs> the snowshoes party. The mostly snowshoes party.
1: Back at the late camp, Mill Elliott, who went to fetch the compass, comes back. He's been to Alder Creek and he reports quite a few people are dead, including Jacob Donner. So they're not doing well over at Elder Creek. Forlorn hope. They have some issues. Stanton, he gets snow blindness. He doesn't want to pull them back. So he says, leave me by the fire here. I'll catch up later. They all know he won't, but
0: they leave him anyway. And he dies. Well, it's the sort of honourable sacrifice that people do make in these exceptional survival circumstances. It is. Stanton, of course, is the one who went ahead for
1: supplies and came back despite not having any friends or family. So he's been a pretty good guy. That sounds so harsh. (laughs) (laughs) No friends, no family. (laughs) By Christmas Eve, the forlorn hope have had no food for three or four days and they have a little chat about what to do. As you do at Christmas, we're going to have a fun discussion. And, of course, the conversation does turn to cannibalism. Happy Christmas someone suggests casting lots. Hey, <laughs> Name drop. If you don't know what casting lots is or why it relates to cannibalism, this should explain it. It's a tradition of casting lots or drawing straws to decide who gets to be eaten first. They actually reject that idea. Eddie proposes a shooting contest. Whoever loses gets eaten.
0: Oh my god, okay, now I'm back. The thing about casting lots is it is fair. The idea being that everyone who enters into casting lots knows what's going to happen. That you have, well, let's say ten straws, two of them are shorter than the others. The person who pulls the shortest straw is the one who gets eaten. The person who pulls the second shortest straw is the one who does the deed. Everyone who's in on casting lots knows that that's the arrangement.
1: Yeah, it's a probability game. Yeah. Shooting each other is... Aside from being a bad idea of one of you just gets injured and doesn't die. Yeah. Yeah. So they don't cast lots. No. They also don't have a shooting contest because everyone tells Eddie that's stupid. Good! That night, there's a blizzard. Eddie tries to light a fire with gunpowder, but it just explodes and burns his face and hands. I feel bad for laughing because obviously this is a man who is going through a lot. It does seem like he makes some... Interesting decisions along the way. On Christmas Day, Antonio, who is a Mexican labourer, and Franklin Graves both pass away, naturally, so no need to do any of the casting lots or shooting. There are dubious reports, but allegedly in his dying moments, Franklin Graves urged his daughters to use his body for food.
0: That happens. That's a thing. That's not weird. Okay, maybe it's It's a... a a bit weird happy ha-
1: christmas here's your christmas present <laughs> they don't eat him yet oh for goodness sake <laughs> they're snowstormed stormed in at the moment they're huddled by a fire patrick dolan who is a friend of the breens he's been traveling with them he just can't take it anymore so he takes off several layers and runs out into the snow they manage to wrestle him back inside but he does die
0: is that that hypothermia thing where you get so cold you
1: think you're really hot yeah yeah i think that's what it sounds like The 13-year-old Lemuel Murphy also passes away. It's not a happy Christmas for the forlorn hope. No, it's not. When the storm breaks, Eddie is finally able to build a fire, despite his burns. Unlike the last time that the issue with cannibalism was raised, this time there's no need to kill anyone, so everyone is a bit more on board with doing it.
0: Which is also reasonable.
1: (laughs) Yep, there are corpses to hand. So the first person to be eaten is Patrick Dolan. There is no recorded explanation of who made the decision about who gets eaten first, but speculatively, he doesn't have any relatives unlike two of the corpses, and
0: he's fresher than Antonio. So that could explain it. Is this an opportunity for me to talk about my favourite phrase when it comes to survival cannibalism? Gastronomic incest. I will bring this up a little later on but I came across it in research and I just think it's an amazing look into the human psyche that someone came up with that as a term for eating your own relatives. Mm
1: -hmm. Freud
0: would have a field day.
1: So they haven't yet recourse to that. So on the 30th of December, the Forlorn Hope finally depart their camp. They've either eaten or butchered and dried the meat from all of their dead companions by now. Okay, so it didn't take that long. No, it didn't. When the dried meat runs out, they begin eating the rawhide from their snowshoes. So they can't wear their snowshoes.
0: That's a slight problem. I mean, organic nutrients, it makes sense. You would have thought that they'd have done that first. (laughs) Well, the bodies were already dead.
1: At this point, the Native American guys, Luis and Salvador, do flee, presumably because they think, "Uh uh-oh, we're next. We don't have any ties to this
0: party. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: And I think that's probably a fair thing for them to do. But because Danton's also dead, remember they abandoned him, this leaves them with no members who know the route and they don't have that compass. So now yeah. they're lost. Yeah. J. Fosdick, who is Franklin and Graves' son-in-law, is the next to die and is eaten by the other party members, including his wife, Sarah. Gastronomic incest. Well, not quite, but we're working towards it. Eddie manages to shoot a deer, allegedly, which is also eaten. I'm sure Eddie shot a deer. I don't read to cast yeah, dispersions. I,
0: I mean, I think I've started him. Now shit is real enough that I'm like, unless they're accidentally shooting each other, I'll give them a bit of leeway.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: The Forlorn Hope have been
1: gone from camp three weeks now. They have no food. They're lost. Back at the camp. Margaret Reed led an attempt with her daughters to try and leave. They didn't make it very far. Unfortunately, in leaving, they decided, as we're going, we'll eat the rest of our hides. They were using the hides as a roof, so when they return, they no longer have a place to live. They had to split themselves up among the remaining families. And obviously that's going to be a bit of an imposition. A bit of an imposition, especially as they're out of food. The Breen's taking two of the girls. They're doing relatively well, they've still got some food left. Patrick doesn't want food to be shared with the Reed children. His wife Peggy does sneak them food, but they're not going to be doing so well in the Breen's cabin. The Forlorn Hope are now beginning to contemplate murder. So, not according to Eddie. There are reports now that Eddie has decided that he will try to lure Mary Graves away to kill her. But Eddie, in his turn, accuses William Foster, who is Levina Murphy's son in law, of planning to murder three of the women for food. Upon hearing Foster say this, Eddie threw a club to him and took out his own knife and suggested they fight to the death and eat the survivor. Oh,
0: for goodness sake. He's got a
1: one track mind here. He does. But they're separated before they can actually kill each other. The party then come across some tracks the tracks of Luis and Salvador. They find them almost frozen to death. And Foster decides to just finish the job and shoot them. So it's the only reported intentional murder in the Donna Party story. And Foster, despite surviving, spoilers, Foster comes out okay. Despite that, he doesn't face any legal action or condemnation. Is it because it's a survival situation or is it because Lewis and Salvador aren't white? Makeup your
0: own mind there we that's not an overly difficult one to put two and two together to make five
1: so having consumed for luis and salvador the forlorn hope then stumble upon the village of the sierra miwok who are more native americans from the area who kindly shelter them give them food and help them get back to johnson's ranch it's some interesting race relations going on here really so it's a month and a day since they set out and they finally get to Johnson's Ranch which is the nearest habitation on that side of the mountains. So the 17 who set out, only 7 have made it to the other side. So the survivors are two men, Eddie and Foster, and all five of the women. Okay. I don't know whether now's the point to bring up the talking point of gender in survival cannibals and situations.
0: I mean, we've already touched on race. Let's do all of the big issues. The big issues. Yeah, so
1: at this point and later, the women at the Donner Party do survive a lot better than the men.
0: Any suggestions for why that may be, Alex? I say this like I didn't read up on it, like a (laughs) swat. You have the fact that women store fat differently in their bodies if we're going along the biological, inverted commas around that, line. Mm -hmm. There's also the idea that maybe the men were being manly men. So oh yes, they were cutting through the habitation and the women had to sit and wait and be looked after.
1: The women were riding in the carts whilst the men were stabbing each other and hitting each other with axes on accident and that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, that'll do it. And that'll
1: do it. There's also age, so the men tend to marry younger wives, so the women are probably younger than their male counterparts. In an article I read by Eric Patton, it's a 2011 article titled When Groups Fall Apart, The Donner Party Disaster... But it seems to imply that actually it may be because women are better at crisis management in a team working situation. I don't know whether I buy that one. So back at the lakes, more people are dying, including Philippine Kesseberg's son. So he's the baby that was born just a few months back. That's quite sad for her, obviously. One of the Murphy children dies. We're at the end of January now. So it has been a while. It's understandable that people are petering off. After the Forlorn Hope have arrived back into the reachable world, into civilization, they're sending relief parties. William Eddy, who was in the Forlorn Hope, is somehow recovered enough to walk
0: back. I mean, I'll give him that. That's quite an undertaking. He's
1: tenacious, so he's going with a group of men captained by Reason Tucker. That's a good name. Reason Tucker. Reason Tucker.
0: Reason Tucker.
1: Now, Reason actually has only just emigrated that summer, and he even travelled a little way with the Graveses before they sped off to join the Donna Party. Just more evidence of the fact that it was a really slow cut off. So, again, there's more deaths going on back at camp. The survivors are so weak that they can't even dispose of the bodies properly. They're just dragging them out and putting a bit of snow on top of them, which will come in handy later. <gasps> but for now, it's just depressing that you've got all these corpses around camp. The Reed's lapdog, whose name is Cash, had survived until now, but now they do have to eat him.
0: He's done very well. He has. He's a th- good boy. Such a good boy.
1: Crickets is allegedly what he was eating that dog was not eating crickets i'm sorry <laughs> that's the suggestion the first relief party with william Eddy hit the snow and eddie's sent back to the ranch because
0: mind over matter only goes so far yeah is his face and hands still burnt from the fire yeah. yeah
1: seven of the relief party continue on still with reason tucker he motivates them by promising five dollars a day to each man out of his own purse reason tucker he's another one of who i'm counting as a hero of the story so when the relief party do finally reach Truckee lake or donna lake as it's now called they're surprised that they actually see no signs of life no one comes out to greet them at all they have to go round shouting and calling people up and finally the old widow Levina murphy pops her head out and she asks are you men from
0: california or do you come from heaven so i feel i want to be like Oh, they're safe. I know they're not safe.
1: Yeah, the problem is that everyone at camp is very weak and they've got to make it back across the mountains. Well, first of all, Tucker makes a very good decision, in my opinion, to not tell them what happened to the full-on hope. He just says, the full-on hope got back and sent us.
0: Yeah, I think that was probably wise. Yeah, he probably felt the death and the
1: cannibalism might be a bit depressing to the survivors. So the First Relief Party are insisting that the survivors leave with them that day because currently there's no snow, they want to just go. But of course a lot of them aren't able to travel. There are small children and the mothers want to stay with them. Betsy Donner, for example, she sends her two older boys but she keeps her eldest son to help her and she has lots of infants that she's got to care for. George Donner is too ill to move after his arm issue, being hit with an axe by his brother. And his wife, despite being healthy enough to walk, insists on staying with him. Yep. She sends her two stepdaughters, but has to keep her children. They do allegedly tell the relief party that if they don't get any more food soon, then they will have to start on the corpses. They've already admitted it. It's public knowledge at this point that it will happen. 23 emigrants total try to travel back with the first relief party. Most of them are children and teenagers. We've got Philippine Kesselberg with her one remaining baby. She's had to leave her husband behind. He's the one with the injured foot who can't walk. The one who kicked that guy off his wagon. Now left behind himself. People in the first relief party travelling back are now beginning to die off as they go through the snow. John Denton dies. Remember the grandma who died... Oh, yeah. He made a headstone for her on the route. He's quite popular. Yeah. Yeah. He knew he was dying, so not wanting to hold the others back, he asked to be left behind. And Reason Tucker promised to come back for him, but of course, they both knew that was a lie. Philippines' remaining baby dies in the night, and she wants to keep carrying it with her, and they have to have an argument with her to get her to put it down. It's all very sad. Yeah. Back at the lake, it's worse. Levina Murphy allegedly confides in Patrick Breen that she intends to start eating the corpse of Milt Elliot, as long as the wolves haven't already had him. And Breen writes in his diary, "It is
0: distressing." Well, that's an understatement. It's all been like sunshine and roses up until now. The Breens have
1: to eat their dog, sadly. The dogs were doing quite well. They survived a long time.
0: Yeah, I'm not quite sure how the dogs have survived this long. The crickets, Alex. The cricket. <laughs> they
1: were not <laughs> eating crickets. At some point over this period as well, the survivors at Alder Creek, so the Donners, they've reached a similar conclusion. Jacob Donner's body is uncovered and with his wife's permission, eaten. In the future, the Donners are a bit elusive about this. So they will mostly insist that it was only the children that were ever fed human flesh. Gastronomic incest. Georgia Donner, who was five at the time, insists that yes, she did eat human flesh. But she also adds that, I did not mean to include the larger children or the grown people because I am not positive that they tasted
0: of it. Well, I mean, she was only five. I can't remember what I did when I was five. Like, I don't think I ate people, but I don't think I could testify yeah, that either someone way. else did. Either way, it's difficult to say. She also recalls her aunt Betsy Donna asking
1: her one day, What do you think I cooked this morning? And the answer was Mr. Schumacher's arm.
0: Well, I'm glad they've still got a sense of humour. Yeah.
1: However, her little sister Eliza Donna, who was four at the time, insists that absolutely no one at Alder Creek did any kind of cannibalism at all. She was
0: four. She
1: was four. I think they probably had to eat bodies to get through that. Reason Tucker's party crossing the mountains. Most of their food caches they left behind have been got into by animals, so they're running low. So much so that Tucker begins to feed bits of his buckskin trousers to the children walking with him.
0: He's just a great guy, isn't he? He's like, (laughs) eat these trousers that I am wearing right now. I mean, there's give you the shirt off his back, and then there's literally eat my trousers. He also gives up his shoelaces for a meal. I'd like this guy. He's a good man. You're a good man, Reason Tucker.
1: The same afternoon after they've eaten the shoestrings from Reason's own feet, they decide that they will send two people ahead to find supplies. And happily, they run into a second relief party coming to fetch them. Hooray. So great. They've got provisions. They've got backup who are going to go to the
0: lake. They're crossing the ways. They exchange some food. They keep going. Mm -hmm. Things are on the up and up. In the second relief party, actually, it's being led by James Reed. Ah,
1: So he sees his family for the first time since he was banished for doing that murder. I mean, he did do that murder. He did, but he's come back now, he's got food, he's very happy to see his family. And he learns that his other two children are still back at camp, so he insists the second relief party just push on, he's got to go get the rest of his kids. Yeah. Fair. The first relief party get back safely to Johnson's Ranch... A majority success. Majority success, especially considering a lot of them are children. There is one more life lost, though. (laughs) You speak too soon. I do. When they get back to Johnson's Ranch, there's food there. And for the 12-year-old boy, William Hook, he just can't control himself. He sneaks out at night. He just eats so much food, gets really ill, and does die the next morning. Because, of course, if you're on a starvation diet, your body can't
0: handle it anymore. Yeah. What are you going to tell a 12-year-old? They're not going to listen to you, are they? He was always going to do that. He'd been on a starvation diet. He doesn't understand the psychology of yeah the human body. Reed's party now reached the
1: lake camps, or just a bit off the lake camps, but they have to camp overnight before they get there because of the snow. So he's decided to send three of his guys ahead. These guys, two miles from the lake cabins, they spot in the distance a party of ten Washo Native Americans a tribe local to the Great Basin area in the Sierra Nevada. And the Second Relief Party assume, completely without foundation, that these Washoe people have killed everyone at the late camp. So these three just hide away for the night. Racism! Of course, when they get there, they find that actually the Washoe haven't irrationally murdered a bunch of starving children because why, why would they? Yeah, why would they? They've actually just been leaving some supplies at the lake camp. They just brought over some vegetables for them.
0: Bet they felt bad after that. Bet they didn't. Bet they no. didn't.
1: Well, it's the only time since arriving at Truckee Lake that the Donner Party have reported contact with Native Americans. But if we then go to Native American oral history, the Washoe actually claimed that they did try to help and kept encountering hostility so for example on one occasion they left a deer carcass by the camp and then were shot at it also possibly explains where this grizzly bear that eddie claimed to have shot himself came from eddie in his weakened state and not a particularly good shot yeah convenient that's complete speculation of course also after they'd been trying to bring food and being shot at they would have also then seen the people eating human remains so it's kind of understandable if they then decided to keep their distance so the second relief reached camp and find nobody slaughtered apart from all the corpses that have been cannibalized just lying around everywhere now there's a very sensational report that reed made later to the illinois journal which i think is selling your story for money maybe there could be some exaggerations but allegedly at alder creek They found the children of Jacob Donner eating his heart and liver raw with his blood all over their faces. There were human skulls found in the camp kettles, although archaeological teams have only ever found cooked animal bones. They haven't found any cooked human bones because probably the bodies were eaten raw because they were so desperate. So again, there's a relief party at camp and the immigrants have to choose who will go back with the relief party and who can't. George Donner's infected arm still means he can't go. Still, his wife, insists she won't leave without him. It's noble. It's also... She also decides to keep all five of her children with her.
0: Okay, that pushes it slightly over the line. So 17 people go back with Reed in the
1: end, um, including Elizabeth Graves and her children, and also the Breen's and their children. But the second relief didn't take enough rations with them. They left it all back at camp. And then also fall low. We're in March now, by the way. This is the 5th of March.
0: So we're... I'd say we're nearly out of winter. We're not nearly out of winter. Not in
1: the mountains, unfortunately. In fact, as an advance party goes ahead to find a cache, there's another blizzard overnight. And the second relief are forced to hunker down around a fire in a temporary camp that comes to be known as Starvation Camp.
0: Yep, that's good. When the blizzard finally
1: ends... Most of them are too weak to go on, so only three survivors continue with Ree's relief party. Thirteen people, mostly children, are left behind at Starved Camp to wait for help. Of course, they start to die off, and at last, Mary Donna, who is seven years old at the time, suggests that they start eating the bodies, because as she tells the Breens, they've already been doing it at Alder Creek. So, why
0: not continue now? Seven. Seven. I mean... She's got a sensible head on her shoulders, but also seven.
1: Peggy Breen later insists that only Mary and the other children ate the bodies. Peggy Breen had nothing to do with it. A fully grown woman is going to be like, it was that child, not me. She started it. she's done. Di- <laughs> well, back at camp, Reed left behind two rescuers to look after everyone. Charles Cady and Charles Stone, the Charlies, um, the Charlies decide that they will cut and run. So they tell Tamsin Donna if she gives them $500, they'll take her daughters back with her across the mountains. They then ditch the girls back at the lake cabins and go on with the money. They spot-starved camp on the way and walk on past it.
0: Oh. They want to survive, but also... Mm. There's you want to survive and then there's let's steal the money from these people and lie to them. It's not going to have been that difficult to have just snuck off. Mm-hmm. They didn't need to do that. So they catch up with Reed who has...
1: Reed was working with the starved camp party and has now left them to go on for help. So the two Charlies meet up with Reed... And at the same time, they all run into this guy called Woodworth, who is coming with another relief party. And then also, William, Eddie and William Foster, who were part of the Forlorn Hope and have been waiting back at the ranch, also happen to be coming through to the area to help.
0: Oh, it's like Piccadilly Circus.
1: Yeah, it's great. They all run into each other and they have a nice little parlay. I bet it's not a (laughs)
0: nice little parlay.
1: No. The two Williams, Eddie and Foster, both want to get back to find their children who are still back at camp. And as far as Reed knows, their children are still alive, so they are very eager to get through and save them. So seven men set out to go on a rescue mission, including Charles Stone, one of the Charlies, who cut and run. So maybe he's feeling a bit guilty now, I don't know. Or maybe with all these other people telling him to go back, he's given in to the pressure.
0: That does feel a bit, oh, so you're going to join, aren't you, Charlie? It's like, yeah, of course, I definitely want to rescue these people.
1: Yeah, oh, hi, Tamsin. Ah, yeah, your daughters that are still here. Oh. So this third relief party finally reached Starved Camp around the 11th of March. Amazingly, 11 out of 13 people are still alive there. They've been eating the remaining bodies. That's still quite impressive, because most of them are children, aren't they? Yeah, most of them are children. The Williams don't want to stay, they keep going. They're going to go get their sons. They only leave three rescuers behind to carry back the starved camp survivors. One rescuer takes one kid, one rescuer takes another kid, and then another, a 220-pound man called John Stark, he uses a relay system to single-handedly transport nine people, including the two adult Breen's all the way back
0: to safety. Another standout player in this hot mess of an endeavour. Yeah, you've done well, John Stark. So when
1: Eddie and Foster reach the late camps, it's to sad news, both their sons have died and been eaten. According to one account, probably his own, Eddie is so upset that he threatens to kill Keserberg over the cannibalism. At the late camps, they still find four children alive. There are also some of the adults and some of the original rescuers who stayed behind. Keseberg refuses to leave. Levian Murphy's too weak. Tamsin Donna... She's joined the girls at the lake camp, her daughters, leaving her sick husband at Alder Creek with a few other dying family members. So she's now going to say, I won't come back with you rescuers, I have to go check whether my husband's alive or not. But the rescuers won't wait for her. They leave, so the last... Spoilers, the last that Tamsin's daughters see of her is her walking back up to Alder Creek to try and find her husband. She is a very loyal wife. Too loyal, really. The rest of the survivors and with the third relief managed to get back fine. It's all good. So we've just got these few people, stragglers, left at Alder Creek and the late camps. So there's one final relief party. We're at the end now. The fourth relief party, they don't actually expect to find any survivors because it's late March, early April. They don't reach camp until the 17th of April, so they are expecting to just retrieve valuables for the families. And the only person they find left alive is Keseberg. They report in the California Star that they found mutilated bodies all about. They found George Donner's head in a kettle with the skull cracked open to get at the brains. They found an uneaten frozen ox carcass. And when they ask Keseberg why, he says it's because it was too dry and humans make for better eating allegedly. When they search Keseberg, they find valuables on him and gold, and when they put a noose around his neck and threaten to hang him, he reveals that actually he's been hoarding George Donner's gold and has buried it away.
0: This is all good journalism. Yes, it's a great story.
1: Interestingly, Keseberg's version is a bit different. No. Yes, he claims that he resisted cannibalism for as long as he could, until there was nothing else to do. In fact, he writes that he felt an unutterable repugnance when I tasted the first mouthful of flesh. There is an instinct in our nature that revolts at the thought of touching, much less eating, a corpse. Which sounds more believable.
0: Yeah, that is a very common reaction. Mm -hmm. The amount of stories that we've read, that is more believable than the sort of mwa-ha-ha, I am going to eat all these people, take all their gold and rule the world. In my little camp all on my own. Yeah. Yeah.
1: He also claims that when Tamsin came back to Alder Creek and found her husband dead, she entrusted Kesseberg with her belongings and she asked that he look after her money and save it for her children, which is why he'd buried it away to come back to later. So he makes it back safely, but his reputation is irreparably damaged. He does manage to sue his rescuers for declamation and wins the case. He's paid a whole $1 in damages. Wow. And his name is just dragged through the dirt forevermore. He never really recovers from that. As for the rest of the survivors, as I said, some of them distance themselves. Some of them continue insisting they did. So Eliza Donner wrote a memoir about it in her 60s in which she's claiming that she definitely ate all these bodies.
0: All of them. All by herself. (laughs) All of them.
1: And the other thing is that the newspapers, originally they were quite sympathetic to the Donner party. But they later start blaming it on mismanagement, calling them lazy,
0: contentious. Is that fair? So very easy sitting behind a quill and by the light of a candle (laughs) with a pork pie to be going, oh yes, these people certainly should have done X, Y and Z. Does Hastings ever get a little bit more of the blame?
1: Hastings doesn't continue to promote his cut-off. He has some more business ventures. Some are successful, some aren't. Really, he gets out okay. He lives his
0: life. Well, good for Hastings. Yeah, I don't think it's quite fair. The Donna Party has this really weird reputation when it comes to cannibalism. I'm talking about musicals again. But there are two musicals about the Donna Party. You have so many non-fiction books, but you also have fictitious retellings. And it's one of the pivotal cases of survival cannibalism, definitely in American history. I know when we were talking about this podcast, Donna Party was something that people knew off the top of their heads would be covered. Because it stopped being about what happened and turned into this sensationalised newspaper report about, oh, he buried their gold and they were cooking their skulls and they'd rather eat human flesh than all of the caches of food that they had, which they didn't. So, I don't know. I think it's interesting to note why the Donner Party has this reputation.
1: Hmm. And I think, obviously, there are cases of mismanagement and stupid decisions, but it's not their fault that Hastings lied to them and they believed him. It's not their fault that winter came quite early that year. It's accidents that will happen along the trail and for other pioneers these kind of accidents didn't slow them down because they were taking the main route.
0: Because at its heart it was, you can say, the trail. If they hadn't taken the trail they wouldn't have had that extra month on top of their journey. (laughs) So they may very well have passed the points they needed to. They might not have had the added trauma of the loss of their oxen. They might not have had various accidents that befell because of that particular route. So how, yeah, it's the question of how much is it their quote unquote fault And how much is it circumstance? The conversation that they had about survival cannibalism, even in their own sources, doesn't come too much out of left field. It was sort of a case of tragedy has happened. We need to survive. Yeah. So they have some context Survival cannibalism happens. The Donner Party isn't the first example. No, they've probably read about it in newspapers, heard about it in stories. No, I I just think the Donner Party's really interesting when it comes to stories about cannibalism. Because, like I say, it's the big one. Mm. And I don't know whether lots of people actually know what happened. At Donner Lake, there is a picnic
1: site... It's a resort, and it was a resort in the late 19th century. People would go there on holiday, even just recently following the tragedy.
0: So we're part of a long history of engaging with these topics. So that was episode one. That's the story of the Donna Party. Um, well, what I think we've learned is that these are going to be longer episodes than we'd planned. There's definitely a lot to chew over there. Ah. Uh. I heard
1: that.
0: (laughs) Thank you for listening to our first ever episodes of Casting Lots, where we have been digging deep into the Donna Party. Next time we'll be looking at a tragedy in the Andes. Lots podcast can be found on Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as @castinglotspod, and on Facebook as Casting Lots Podcast.
1: If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate, review, and share to bring more people to the table.
0: Casting Lots, a survival cannibalism podcast, is research, written, and recorded by Alex and Carmella, with post-production and editing also by Carmella and Alex. Art and logo designed by Riley at Tallest Friend on Twitter and Instagram, with audio and music by Daniel Wackett, Daniel Wackett on SoundCloud and at dswack on Twitter. Casting Lots is part of the Morbid Audio Podcast Network. Search hashtag Morbid Audio on Twitter and the network's music is provided by Michaela Moody. Michaela Moody 1 on Bandcamp. Morbid Audio
1: Podcast Network.